Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Police responded to a 911 call. Dramatic video of gun insanity in the Bronx. Police releasing a new video of a person that they are still trying to track down. Defund the police is not the answer. Many people surveyed said they just don't feel safe in the city. It's a shooting outside of a store. This is Bo Deedles. True crime. Police this morning are searching for the person who turned this Harlem platform to a crime scene. A Red Apple Media Podcast Network production. Now, here's Bo Deedle. Welcome to True Crime Stories. And today we're going to talk about one of the most interesting stories that I've ever heard about because I was misinformed, like a lot of other people. It takes place in one of the places that I love, and I've been there many times. they got great restaurants. And part of the thing about this place of Newport, Rhode Island, is the enormous mansions. I remember taking that little three-wheeled thing around with Margot, and we drive all over. We look at these statuesque mansions all over the place. And I would say it's one of my favorite places in the country. And I have a friend that's been my friend for at least 20-something years who is one of the finest authors ever. And I met him on his original book that I was involved with after 9-11. And we'll talk about that on another show. But basically, my friend is Peter Lance. Now, Peter Lance is a journalist. I believe he was with ABC News at one time. And what he did was he wrote a book about homicide at Rough Point. Now, Rough Point is a place that is in Rhode Island there. And like I say, it's not just Rhode Island. This is Newport. And if I had to live anywhere in the United States, that would be one of my top three places to live, or maybe top two. And I want to welcome Peter. Peter, welcome. Thank you for coming on Bo Deedle's True Crime Story. Great to be with you, my old friend. We go back a long way. Yeah, yeah. And if I give a little overview and you jump in any time. Now, the book came out in 2021. Am I correct? Yeah, late February 21, the book came out in four editions, um, a hardcover, paperback, Kindle, ebook, and then audio edition that I narrated. But it started with an article in Vanity Fair that I did in the summer before July, August issue of 2020. Yeah, I think we got to give a little overview. So let's talk about what the book is about. Here we go. On October okay. 7, 1966, Doris Duke. Now, who's Doris Duke? She was a tobacco heiress. She was probably at one time, she was described as the richest woman in the world once. And she lived her adult life until she died in 1993. But in October, on October 7, 66, she was leaving her mansion in Rough Point, And she had this designer gentleman. Please say the name. I, I don't want to screw the name Eduardo up. Torella. Eduardo Torella. Right. He was 42 years old. Now, he was, I don't think it makes a difference, but I believe he was a gay guy, and he was an artsy guy, and he worked with her, and he had friends in Hollywood. He had, like, Sharon Tate, believe it or not, Kim Novak. So, I mean, he was a real deal, and he was always with Doris Duke, and then all of a sudden it came out to be about that he was going to leave her. And then, basically, 
typically what happens is, and I want you to describe it because, as I said, you did more. You're a detective, Peter Lance, just like Bo Deedle, but you did a lot of homework on this, and I think that you can describe exactly what happened, how you got involved, and basically all of a sudden you found one of the only eyewitnesses, and leading up to this, how the cover-up, the cover-up with the cops there, and all this, this is, you talk about a movie, this to me is going to make a great movie because it keeps, or a series, because it could be a series because it's elongated and it pops up. So let's start out on that evening. Set it up, please, Peter. Okay, Bo. So Eduardo Torella was a remarkable man. I did not realize who this man was until I began to research the story. He was a war hero. He won the Bronze Star in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. He was from New Jersey, uh, one of nine kids in a family of Italian-Americans, a uh, wonderful family. He started out as a song and dance man, wanted to be an actor, had stars in his eyes. He knew Frank Sinatra in his early days in Jersey, and eventually he started designing hats in New York, working at Saks Fifth Avenue. And he, his partner at the time was an incredible guy named Edmund Cara, who was designing clothes, who later became a very famous sculptor on the West Coast. Long story short, Eduardo began working for Doris Duke years later as her principal art curator and designer. She had five homes. She was, first of all, she was the richest woman in America, the third woman in the world. Wow. Big, tall, six foot two. She had a, in addition to this incredible mansion in Newport, which is at the end of Bellevue Avenue, which they call Millionaire's Row, as you know. She had a, a Duke Farms in New Jersey, 2,500 acres. She had Shangri-La, this incredible estate in Diamond uh, Head, Hawaii. And she also bought the old Valentino mansion in Bel Air, Rudolph Valentino, wow. which is ironically how I begin the book, because Sharon Tate was also, as you mentioned, a really close friend of Eduardo's. And literally months before she was murdered by the Manson family, her little sister, the house that Sharon was killed in, was literally across the street from this mansion, uh, the, the Valentino mansion. Her little sister wandered up in there one day and a caretaker yelled at her. She skinned her knee, cut to this limo comes in. It's Doris Duke. The kid doesn't know who it is. When she, As soon as she hears who this kid is, the sister of Sharon Tate, who by then was one of the hottest young stars in Hollywood, you know, she patches up her knee. Little did she know, and Sharon came over and she was very nervous at the time, why? Because several years earlier, Sharon knew that Doris Duke had murdered her one of her closest friends. So this was after so he was Peter. This is after after he was her, he was after killed. He was killed. After he was killed. <clears throat> yeah. So I do kind of a flash forward as I open the book, but it gives you an idea. Eduardo was finally starting to make it in Hollywood. He had just designed for the Sandpiper this huge movie with Liz Taylor and Richard Burton oh, and shot man. in Big Sur. The guy was flying, Bo. He was going to do Sharon's next movie in Malibu. He was, so he he, was, he was Hollywood handsome, too. I've seen pictures yeah, of him. Holly, yeah, right. Exactly. And he, he also had little cameos in each of the film. He was the Bo Deedle of his day. You know, <laughs> you have more than cameos. Well, come on. Right? I don't have cameos. Anyway, I have roles, right. Peanut. Stop. You have roles. That's what I said. I'm giving you credit. You have lines. You remember SAG. So anyway, cut to years later now. His Hollywood career is amping up. He wants to leave her now. Here's some context about Doris Duke. She was notoriously jealous, and she had all the power in the world. And two years earlier, she had this long common-law marriage with a jazz musician called Joe Castro, Joseph Armand Castro, brilliant guy, piano player, you know, band leader. 
and she stabbed him with a butcher knife one night. And when he made a comment, a, some crack about her piano playing, 150 stitches, Bo, no police call. The whole thing was covered up. She got away with that. So she knew at the time this event happens with Eduardo, she knew the kind of power that she had. And she was particularly powerful in Newport, Rhode Island. Right. So and, anyway, so they You know, and Peter, if I may, you know, and part of this, it's disturbing to me is, and we're going to bring him up, is the one person that was the chief of police there. You know how I feel yeah. about corrupt cops and how you yeah. covered things up. But just put an overlay as far as what was Newport, Rhode Island all about with these massive parties and fancy this and right. fancy that. Bring us there. Yeah. So Newport, Rhode Island, where I grew up and I'm a local boy, and that's the reason I got into doing this story. Newport, Rhode Island was what they call the summer playground of the New York 400. The New York 400 were all these blue bloods. They called them the Knickerbockracy. All these people that went back to the Dutch settlers of Manhattan who stole it from the Native Americans, as you know, for 24 bucks. <laughs> the hoi polloi, the reason they call them the 400 is Mrs. Astor, John Jacob Astor, his wife, she had this huge ballroom where the Empire State Building was. That was her mansion. And she could fit 400 people into this ballroom. So when they created the New York Social Register, which was the, the book of who, who was who in New York back in the days, in the Gilded Age, and this and the series on HBO now about to go into a second season is all about this era, and a lot of it shot in Newport, they would come up to Newport and they would outdo each other, one mansion after another. You want to talk about the old term McMansion? People yeah. would try and one-up each other. These are palazzos. And the Vanderbilt family, Anderson Cooper's family, they had six of these things. And one of them was actually built first by a Vanderbilt. That, and Doris Duke's father made his first fortune in tobacco. He created the modern cigarette as we know it mm -hmm. uh, from North Carolina. They ended up fun, founding Duke University. They also, he also made a fortune in Alcoa Aluminum and Duke Power, which is now called Duke Energy. So this woman was a gazillionaire, and his father left most of the fortune to her when she was like 12 years old. He died on his deathbed, but she became notoriously paranoid. Why? Because on his deathbed, he said, Doris, trust no one. Okay? So she surrounded this estate with broken glass because it fronts on the cliff walk, you know, that goes along yeah. the back of all these mansions, tourist attraction. And she had vicious dogs in all of her states that would constantly maul people. So she had a tremendous amount of power in Newport. But, but this is important. She had never given a dime to the city. In fact, she was, in, she was notoriously litigious. She had over 40 lawsuits in her life, and she had sued the city. She put up a chain-link fence to block this famous tourist attraction, Cliff Walk. I mean, she was the only one that ever did that. I'm falling back into my Newport accent, by the way, as I do the show. Anyway, no, but I mean the, the setting. The setting is phenomenal for this for this yeah. movie or series. I think right. I want. I want. You know, we have the setting, Peter. I want to get yeah, to the meat. Zero in on the yeah, crime. the meat of that day. Crime. Yep. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Yeah, so what happened was Eduardo's friend warned her, don't tell her, call her by phone, don't tell her you're leaving her, she's notorious. Oh, I can handle Doris. So they go back and literally he held off until minutes before they were going to go out to pick up this important thing called a reliquary. It was an artifact, which we can get into or not later. And she never bought a work of art without him appraising it in one way. 
So basically, they're leaving. Me. She, he asked her to rent a, a, a station wagon. So they're in this two-ton Dodge Polara, brand-new station wagon. He's driving. They get to these massive iron gates at her estate. And this is in the days before automatic gate openers. So he gets out of the car, out of the vehicle, to open the gates, to swing them open. And he's going to get back in and drive out, et cetera, et cetera. Doris later told the police when I described what happened, oh, I would always slide behind the wheel and I would drive the car out. That was absolutely a lie. It was in the police report, which I later found. But anyway, this is at five o'clock in the afternoon, October. It's still light out. He gets out to open the gate. Suddenly she makes four affirmative acts. This is what I found later on. She slides behind the wheel. Act number one. She releases the parking brake under the dash. It was an affirmative released by the hand, not an accidental hitting of something on the floor. Uh She then puts the car into gear and she slams down on the accelerator, causing these massive tire, uh, uh, you know, two inch deep tire marks in the dirt, in the gravel, and then lunges forward at him. And I'm not going to tell you what ultimately happened because I want people to buy homicide at rough point and find out what happened, the mystery that I uncovered. And anyway, he is, she, she blows through the gates, and he ends, she drags him to his death across uh, Bellevue Avenue and ends up knocking down 20 feet of post and rail fence and crashing wow. against a tree. He is dead, dead, dead under the wheel. And minutes later after the accident, when the first police officer arrives, and I'll get to that, how I unravel that, mm. she hires the local medical examiner, Dr. Philip C. McAllister, as her personal physician. No, wait, wait a the second. He was the, the acting medical examiner at the time? Act- at the time, he has to determine the cause of death, <laughs> McAllister. She hires him as her personal doctor, and he hires, puts her in a private room at Newport Hospital so that the, the state investigators, these two great Italian-American guys, one of whom was called Louis Parati, who I interviewed in his 80s, were going to come down from Providence. That was their job in vehicular homicides to interview the driver, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of basic. Yep. And they couldn't get to her for two days. And finally, uh, I'll, I'll move forward because this is the important part. Uh, they, they, she was protected by the authorities. Her lawyer comes up from New York. They concoct a cover story. And the cover story was that she would always slide behind the wheel. And she told the, the cops show up on Sunday and she's in her bedroom. and She has two vicious dogs, German shepherds on either side. She's got her business manager and lawyer in the room, this Lieutenant Walsh, who later becomes the police chief after this. Okay, talk about local corruption. Uh, Four question interview, Bo. If I saw. I saw. Been there. This one. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, saw shoot. the written questions there in part of my research on on, on the uh, book and these four basic questions. That was it. Yeah, they say, uh, "Are you Doris Duke?" Et cetera, et cetera. And then they go. You have happened? a license. And in a little paragraph, a little paragraph, she says. I, uh, you know, we've done this a hundred times before. I slid behind the wheel and suddenly the car just leaped forward from a dead stop and I was on him. Now, Radice, uh later, this police chief, Joseph Radice, whom, by the way, I grew up, all these people I knew, McAllister was my family doctor. I had no idea. Is he, he still alive, that chief that moved down to uh, Florida? No, no, the chief died many, many years ago. He'd been on the job for 40 some years at the time. But anyway... <laughs> But Radice's brother lived around the corner from me. I knew the family well. But Radice was, you know, just started as a beat cop, walked around the Ocean Drive and even talked about how he used to go into the. He literally had to patrol the Ocean Drive on foot back then. They had one or two uh, patrol cars. And he said, in order to get, you know, get out of the cold, we got to know all the, the you know, the servants on the estate. You could get a cup of coffee. So there, there's always been kind of an unholy relationship, if you will, or a cozy one 
between the police in Newport and the mega wealthy. But anyway, so what happens is after this interview on Sunday, this which the Italian guys from Providence of uh, Louis Parati gets, and I'm a mezzo says myself, so I can say this, get away with it. Louis Parati gets down there with his partner, Mazarone, and they, they don't even get to ask a question. They're kind of kept on the edge of the room. These are, the these, are the the in, these are the investigating the detectives from the state that are investigating, investigating a possible homicide. It, uh, right. it has to be, right? This was kind of similar when I looked into that case with that little girl in, in Boulder, Colorado, where the parents wouldn't talk to the detectives. They flew to, they flew to uh, uh, Georgia, and they would only get the questions written ahead of time and questioned together. I mean, this is ridiculous, but keep yeah. going, Peter. Right. John Benet Ramsey. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so what happened was the next day the police chief has a press conference. Now she's an international figure, and so everybody's there. The AP, UPI, uh, they're all there. New York Daily News sent a great guy up to Newport, and the chief basically tells the story and says she crushed him against the gates. She was, in, you know, she was totally in shock, uh, hospitalized after, and we're closing the case. This is around ten <laughs> in the morning, Bob. All right, picture the press. I've already wait, wait, wait. Let's get, the, let's get the audience to listen now. It happened on October 7th, Friday, Friday night at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And when was this okay. case closed out? 96 out. Well, like 72 hours later, for, closed first, and then they had to reopen it. Let me, let me just get yeah. to how they, what happened next. So, they, uh, so the chief closes the case Monday morning after this little tiny paper-thin interview in, in her bedroom on Sunday. And he, and he said, case closed, unfortunate accident. Boom. <laughs> well, the New York Daily News guy that was there calls the, the attorney general of the state at the time. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's not rush to judgment here. This is like, you know, come on. Right. He's like acting like a responsible law enforcement yeah. official. And so the chief goes, now listen to this. This is, and this <laughs> is I prove this and I uncover this. It's in the book. The chief goes to her lawyer, Aram Arabian who in those days was the Roy Cohen of New England. Everybody knows Roy Cohen that listens to your show, the unscrupulous yeah. attorney in New York. So basically, Aram Arabian says to the chief, tells the chief, this is what you do. You, you do a transcript of an interrogation that's more detailed than this little paper-thin thing <laughs> Sunday. And he goes, what? What do you mean? We interrogate? No, you know an interrogator. You just type up something like you did interrogator. <laughs> and how do you so find this? Literally... I found it because the police report, which is missing for years, I found the police report. I tracked it down. Oh. It's one of the many things I had to do. Everything was missing because she had she would hire PIs, uh, press flax, and lawyers to sanitize the record of her troubled life. There's a wrongful death trial I need to get to briefly, where she's found civilly liable for his death. And when it gets to the jury, the verdict is seventy five thousand dollars, Bo. Her family divides it up. They get $5,600 a piece. No. The man was 42 years old. He had a Hollywood career. Yeah, because, you know, I can't prove that they played the gay card at the time. And what was the life of a gay yeah. man worth in 1966? It was a Providence urban jury. I don't know. But the transcript was missing. So I had to piece this thing together with little pieces of circumstantial evidence. I found the autopsy report, the death certificate. I found the first police officer on the scene. And by the way, to credit the surviving members of the Newport PD, which is a great institution, as always, it's the bad guys at the top, right, that corrupt yep. 
these institutions. These cops were, wanted to unburden themselves. None of them knew the full story, so they would tell me little pieces of what was going on, and that's how I was able to put it together. But here's, here's the bottom line. I find this, and it's in the book, it's, it's peterlance.com, my website, has mm-hmm. all of this information, and it's all in the book. And the book reads like a long magazine article. It's a fast read. And this three-page transcript, it's prima facie, on its face, fraudulent. How do I know that? Because the first question they ask, and it's like, QA, QA, and it begins by saying, Captain Paul Sullivan, who's the chief of detectives, interrogated Miss Duke on, uh, you know, it was supposed to be Tuesday like the 11th of October at noon at rough mm-hmm. point, the whole thing. And, and, and the first question, they get her date of birth wrong. They make her younger than she really was. <laughs> that was done on purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so they, what, what happens, she goes in and corrects the date of birth, scratches it up and initials DD. She did another section in the thing and then signs each page at the bottom. Now, listen. Uh, you know this. If this had been conducted in real time with a real stenographer, they would have caught that mistake and it would have been reflected in the transcript. Yep. This was a script, a Hollywood script that was written to cover up this case. Wow. And then right away, within uh, I, I, like you know weeks, she gives $10,000 to Newport Hospital. You can multiply that figure by eight to get the current dollars. She begins... She she begins she gives twenty becomes a, she becomes the good person of of, of Rhode the, Island of Newport the benefactor the mm. benefactor because Newport had the Navy base was about to uh, half closed twenty three thousand jobs were cut by Nixon who was upset with the Rhode Island for coming in as, as well as they did from McGovern in the election of seventy two mm. so he closes the Navy base Newport's ready to declare bankruptcy and Doris Duke in what I call a murderous quid pro quo, becomes the savior. She restores wow. 70 colonial houses, and it becomes a tourist attraction as it is has been ever wow. since. Wow. Steve. Steven Spielberg shot Amistad in Newport because Doris created that back lot, okay. if you will. I'm going to throw a name at you that came up when I was looking into Stephen Magoo Robinson. Absolutely. Has he you know, fitted? Steve, have you ever heard of him? Go ahead. That's what I'm asking you. Go ahead. All right. Okay. So I went to high school. There's a lot of my story, my backstory in this. But people have, people have to people have to understand. <laughs> Peter, uh, uh, Mr. Lance here. Peter Lance grew up there, so this was his backyard. His dad was in the military. Peter's dad was in the military. Navy chief. So so Navy he chief. he knew all the area it was like his neighborhood, and then so he <laughs> right. knew a lot was going on. But let's focus on the Stephen Magoo Robinson. Right. Yeah, so uh, basically, I talk about the De La Salle was the Catholic high school I went to in one of the mansions down the street uh, from Rough Point. And uh, it was like a $300 a year. It wasn't a prep school, but it was a great you know school to go to. And Steve Robertson was a genius. He was like a year ahead of me. And ironically, we're in the rifle club together, and you'll understand the irony of that in a minute. And we worked together at boys club camp, and he was a wonderful guy. Steve got into... Uh, to, uh, uh, to the U.S. Military Academy at, uh, uh, at West Point. Yeah. <clears throat> and he <clears throat> dropped out at a certain point. I had lost touch with him. So now, <clears throat> 1967 was my first summer on the, of two in the Daily News. And this is uh, almost a year to the day. How old were you the then, Peter? Case. How old were you then? I was like 18 years old. Go ahead. 18, 18 and change. So I literally had never... You know, I, I did that summer. I got to cover the cup races. I learned how to write a five-point lead. You read upside down when the cops didn't want to give us the reports. You know, <clears throat> the basic tenets of journalism. 
But all of a sudden, because uh, I was there for six months, so this is October. I'm still there working on the paper. I went to Northeastern undergrad. And so my editor, Jim Edward, calls me at seven in the morning. Hey, there's been a murder at the Quality Lunch. I go, Quality Lunch? That's the Janatis family. They lived up the street from me, this Greek family. And people would go to this place late at night. I go, he goes, get up there and see what you can find. So I go and knock on the door. Julia Janatis, her husband's there. They give me this account of these three sailors that are in there. They're harassing a local kind of town drunk named Willie Amato. And they're giving him, you know, and Steve Robertson, who had dropped out of Rough Point, was in there at the lunch counter. And he's defending this little guy because he was that kind of a guy, Bo. He was always a defender of the little guy, mm-hmm. Steve. And so uh, these cops are like threatening. I mean, the sailors are threatening him. Or we, you know, after we finish with this guy, we're going to go after you. <clears throat> so he there's a t- two doors front and back in this place. He goes out the out the back door. He's parked his car in front of City Hall, block away. He pu- comes back with a 30 caliber rifle, comes back in, boom, boom. One of the guys had already been 86, and he kills two of these sailors in cold blood, shoots wow. them dead. He quietly walks out, gets in his car, and then takes off. Now, he was later arrested after he went all the way to New York. He, he, he literally escaped and got all the way to the city, had remorse, came back, and turned himself into the police. And by the way, the po- he was the Boys Club Boy of the Year. The chief of detectives, Paul Sullivan, that I told you about with Doris, he yeah. loves the, everybody loves Steve Robbins. They, so they arraigned him that night in the police station. And who has to go there as a reporter to cover the perp walk but the young me? I go there and all these other reporters from Rhode Island are there. I'd never covered a, you know this kind of a thing. And wow. this guy walks out in cuffs. He's my friend. And he looks at me in the eye and I look at him. And I'm like, you know, oh, my God. But I, I, I filed the story for the AP. They ran my copy. I did the, next, the follow-up story the next day. And years went by. I knew he I knew he went to the ACI, one of the baddest jails in America, the adult correctional institution in Cranston, as you know, which was dominated by Patriarcha's mafia, you know, the New England mafia. Yep. OK, yeah, I remember. And, uh, Jerry, there was a guy named Jerry, who was the, one of the main hitmen. who was a Canadian American, couldn't be made. He was he was the guy that basically ran the prison. And so Steve Robertson goes up there and I never I lose touch. 40 years go by. I, you know, I, I knew he vaguely he, he'd done some prison reform and he got out, but I didn't know much about it. So I track him down because I want to tell the story. I want to find out what happened to him, Bo, right? Yep. And he and I start talking to each other. I found him. His brother had just died. I found him through the funeral home, O'Neill's funeral home, where, and the guy at the funeral home says, Peter, you know, what's amazing? He paid in cash for the funeral the next day. Nobody does that. Wow. I said, well, that's the Steve that I remember. So cut to the chase. So literally cut to the chase. He is, he tells me that night he escapes. He figures his route out. He goes all the way up to Boston, cuts across Massachusetts, goes down to toward New York. He's going to head to Canada, you know, on the New York Thruway. And then he has he's a Catholic kid, you know, yeah. and he and he says, now nah, I got to go back. He literally makes it to a roadblock in Connecticut on 95. And they had a ferry then. This is before the bridge. He crosses the ferry. And he walks, parks in the parking lot of the police and walks up. He says, I think you've been looking for me. Wow. So I, so he tells me his whole story, but he, he's real shy about what he did in prison. He won't tell me. So I said, you got to give me somebody that can vouch for what you did. And this guy, I, I talk, uh, it's kind of like the Shawshank Redemption. I, I find this guy who is his main uh, the, the handler in prison who ran this uh, a furlough program. Steve designed the program for furlough so that the good inmates that wanted to change their lives could get out and everything. He said, I never met a guy more honest than Steve Robertson in my life. 
So I said, so Jerry Wimet was this guy. This, in fact, there's a, a movie about a heist that Don Johnson plays Jerry Wimet in the movie. Mm-hmm. He was this really tough, brutal guy. And I said, well, how did Steve, I kept asking him, you know, prison's got to be rough, Steve, you know, thinking what happened. And he, and he won't tell me, he says, Jerry Womet, he took a baseball bat to Jerry Womet, threatened him with a baseball bat the first day he got in there. Mm. And, and Jerry Womet backed down. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, he just, he didn't know whether the kid was crazy or not. But later, because he did so much work for the inmates in there, including the Italians, the mafia guys, uh, he got huge respect. Steve gets parole. Listen to this. He runs. He runs for office, and you know, and, and carries Newport, Rhode Island as a state rep. But you know, no. First, they deny him. Say, Secretary of State says not enough signatures. So he runs for Secretary of State in Rhode Island, <laughs> and he carries Newport County. But you know, he doesn't win. But he then becomes the head of the Postal Union in Providence. Mm. He has a wonderful life. So the last chapter of the book I call the redemption of Stephen Robinson. Yeah, but going back to this now, what happened when you first started to look and investigate this? Obviously, this yeah. was in your life from when you were young, and then there were yeah. they had these groups together there, the Newport Restoration Foundation and the right. foundation. They continue to maintain that Terrell's death was accidental. So you were you're, right. you're going against them. They want their narrative to stay in place that this was a right. terrible accident. A couple of yeah. minutes on that. All right, real quick. So the first thing they did, they did many cover-ups. Like in the mansion, and you can still go there. So people should buy my book and then go to Rough Point. And I have 70 locations in the book, starting with Rough Point. Take the tour at the museum that's now a museum. And you'll see most of the artwork in there was, was curated by Eduardo Torella. Wow. Including the reliquary of St. Ursula, which is right at the bottom of the stairwell, which is the object that they were going out to evaluate that night. Mm. She later bought it. Wow. But anyway... Uh, so what happened was, uh, uh, you know, the, the Restoration Foundation, when they got wind that I was doing a piece for Vanity Fair, had, you know, Eduardo's name was never mentioned. When she died and she got a three quarters of a page and the two thirds of a page in the New York Times, her obituary, he got one sentence mm. of 34 words. Can you imagine that? This is the mo- wow. one of the most important events in her life. And so she sanitized. She wanted to remove this guy from the public record. You know, so basically... Yeah. Anyway, I know that we're running out of time. No, but, but basically, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, finish off with that. Yeah, so so what happened is when I began investigating, I started in the summer of 2018. It took me two years to put this together. And I did it more for him and his family. You know, I wanted this guy, this war hero, who I found out had been won the Bronze Star, to have a place in history that was important instead of being removed. You know, so basically what they did was after the fact, the police, you know, for all these years, you know, it was, it was a, an accident. So I write the book, okay? And I go to Newport last summer in this beautiful new hotel, the Brenton on the waterfront. Yeah. Had me as author in residence for the month of July. They put the book in all the rooms. And I, a couple of times a week, I'd go to their beautiful cocktail lounge. And it was packed, you know, and I'd give a spiel. And, you know, people would ask me questions, sign books. So one of those nights, uh, yeah, a heavy set guy uh, named Bob Walker shows up. Heavy set, uh, you know, gray hair. A walrus mustache. He looks at me. He goes, hey, I was there that night. I said, what? No, she was the only living witness. No, no, Peter, I was there. And so I take the guy to the bar for two hours and I vet him because, you know, in my business, Bo, and yours, people say, I know the guy, the second gunman on right. the grassy knoll. You this know. was, this so was, I, he was a kid at this time. Am I correct? He was 10 years old. And, and he, he heard the argument. Boy. 
He heard them. He was a block away, and he's delivering the paper, and he hears the entire lead up to the to his death, wow. Eduardo's death. He hears a man and a woman arguing, and then he drops the paper in. Seconds after the crash, he turns the corner and he sees Doris get out of the car and stare at it. Not, oh my God, what did I do? Not, emo- like, not emotional, not emotional. Wow. Not emotional. And no marks on her. And that becomes a very important clue for people in the book that when I solved the crime, when proving that she committed with intent to kill murder. So cut to the chase. The police reopened the case based on him, okay? Wow. And, then, uh, and they asked me, they say, we find Bob credible. I talked to guys he told the story to in Marines in the early 70s. Is the case still open? Is the case still open, Peter? No, no. So what happened is the cold case detective gets the case, Jackie Weist, and months start to go by, and she never reads my book. She says, in the beginning, I need your help. And I'm, I'm, I'm like literally emailing her every other week. What do you want? Let's talk. I'll give you whatever you need. She won't talk to me. Uh, September goes, we get, this is July 3rd, it starts. So September 15th, she makes an unannounced visit to his house one night. How unprofessional is that? If you're not going to go and yeah. meet somebody, go to their house. And she says, listen, uh, I don't know. You know, a lot of people have said this is, it's kind of, you know, I don't know. A lot of years have gone by. He says, what are you talking about? You found me credible. I dovetail with Peter's book. Everything he said in the book, Fred Newton, the sergeant, <laughs> solved the case, and Peter proved it. What do you mean? And so she goes, well, um, I, they just promoted me to sergeant. I'm going to <laughs> European vacation for three weeks. Yeah, no. I don't know. And I haven't read the book yet. <clears throat> so finally, in November, I pressed the city council, what is going on here, Right. And, and, and by the way, since she's dead, they can't convene a grand jury. But for the sake of history, right, let's get it straight for the sake of Eduardo. And finally, in November, she closes the case with a little curt little it's all on PeterLance.com. The lead article on the website has all this links to this. She says there's no evidence, not uh, was conflicting evidence or no evidence. Sure, <laughs> there's no. And then they close the case and officially it's still an unfortunate accident, well, even the corrupt verdict of all those years ago. Well, you know, I'm a homicide detective. I'm retired from the police department, but I investigate homicides still now. And in reality, until someone is arrested for it or indicted for it, the case is right. open. And that's what a murder is all about. Now, the most right. important thing here, Peter, is you took a case. This is, to me, is one of the most interesting because the people involved there, Newport and all that, and this woman, and and you wrote a book, Homicide at Rough Point. I want my listeners to get the book. And also, where are we going with the movie and all that stuff? Where are we at with that, Peter? Yeah. So I several movie studios, Warner Brothers and Condé Nast Entertainment, which is the parent company of Andy Fair, have tried to make deals with me. And they wouldn't really guarantee me. I'm not looking for a final cut. I just wanted to have some input in the project. They wouldn't promise me that. I said, listen, I don't want to have a project where I get invited to the screening and Doris is the heroine of the story, okay? <laughs> and, right? and believe me, believe me, when I did one tough cop, Bo Deedle story, they had me killing 40 people and I didn't kill nobody. And you want to know something? Exactly. I didn't have any say. Then they had me cheating with my best friend's girlfriend. I said, that's not in my DNA. I wouldn't do something like that. They right. go, well, we own it and you signed yeah. off and bye-bye. Right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I decided to I would take the bull by the horns myself. So, you know, my middle career, I worked on Miami Vice crime story. I was the showrunner on Wise Guy, you know, Michael Mann, Stephen Cannell. So I have I'm a pretty experienced screenwriter, you know. So I decided I'm going to. So I wrote a pilot script and I have an eight hour series. The whole thing is laid out. It's out to a couple of major producers, including Ryan Murphy. And but I recently this summer, I get a call from a 
very prominent, won't use his name, a feature producer who calls me because I saw your book at Barnes and Noble. I bought it. I read it in two nights. I love it, but I think you should do it as a feature film. So I'm like, you know what? I'll give it a shot. So I'm working on that as well. But I really think this is eight hours. This could go multiple seasons because Doris had such an amazing life. I mean, no, you know just I mean? to just to so. back just to backfill of Newport, Rhode Island. But I'm going to tell you something. We're going to wrap it up now. But Peter, yeah. let me tell you something. For the people listening out there, how they can get the book, one. Number two is how they go on your site. To me, this is one of the most interesting cases about an icon in American history, one of the richest women in America, if not the richest, and what happened, how someone was able, with the power that they had, to get away with murder. And where could people get this book and any information about you, Peter? Yeah, thank you. So it's PeterLance.com, P-E-T-E-R-A-N-C-E.com. The lead article at German magazine Stern recently put it in their 40th anniversary edition, uh, featured it. And all the details that you've heard me tell Bo tonight with links and everything. But get the book, and you can order a signed hardcover first edition on that site or get it from Amazon. But I want to say a quick thing about one of the great cops that helped me with this case, Jimmy Moss, Detective James Moss from the NYPD retired Brooklyn South homicides, one of my oldest friends. We saw the cold case homicide of uh, Mustafa Shalabi in Brooklyn, and he's been my friend for years. And he came up to Newport when, during one of my uh, trips there, and he helped me after Bob Walker came forward, right? And I did a second Vanity Fair piece, which you can get on the website. Jimmy Moss said to me, because she, Bob found her with no marks on her. When the first cop, Eddie Angel, got there, she had, like, bruises, like steering wheel injuries, like she did bumped her, you know. And so what she did was she literally saw Bob. He, she chased him away from the scene. She hears the sirens of the first cop arriving, and she got back in the car and, boom, you know, injured herself and began feigning shock. And so Jimmy Moss says the behavior of that woman was that of a pure psychopath, mm. not a sociopath, a pure Psychopath. Well, well she's and dead that now. Doris Duke. Well, Doris Duke, you're dead now when you took a really great person and you killed a really great person. As far as I'm concerned, and I was on the jury, I'd convict her of murder. So that's your friend Bo. But I want to thank you, Peter. You're my friend for 25 years and you're you're a great writer. I recommend people to buy the book, read the book. It's so interesting and it brings you into the lifestyle of the people of Rhode Island there in Newport and it's a great book and I want to thank you Peter and we'll be speaking to you soon thank you so much Peter thanks Bo you're the best thank you hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.